been talking about loving one another in the context of community. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe up in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. And the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. I wonder if C.S. Lewis, when joyfully writing these words, had John 13 in mind. Where Jesus commands us to love each other, one another, not just your immediate context, but context, but the Christian community, to love one another in ways where we position ourselves, where it is almost certain that our hearts will be wrung, twisted, torn, and even possibly broken. About a year ago now, I had to put down my childhood dog, McGarry, the best girl boxer you'll have ever have met in your entire life. It's a terrible name for a girl. I'm well aware of that. Um, but as I was sitting on the floor where she always used to lay, bawling my eyes out and Cassie consoling me, I just remember saying, I don't want to go through this again. The pain of loving and losing something so seemingly insignificant and stupid as an animal made me want to ensure that I would never have to put myself through that. And so I just didn't want to get another dog or anything like that because why would I subject myself to that kind of hurt? This feeling was a very short-lived one as less than one day later, my wife was sending me Craigslist ads for dogs. I'm mourning the loss of my dear beloved McGarry, and I get at 9 a.m., 15, this one's cute. Oh, this one could be a good one. This one looks like it's got a great personality. And then 48 hours later, we were bringing home two golden retriever puppies and expecting a kid in seven months. We are incredible at timing, if, you, if I do say so myself. But it's kind of as Michael Scott says, there was no question we were ready to get hurt again. But more importantly than just choosing to get an animal that you know eventually is going to die. I've had a daughter, not I, Cassie has had a daughter, we've gotten married. Being a Michigan fan, even being a pastor where I'm called to love so many people, all of these things in my life is a recipe for having my heart wrung and possibly even broken. And yet this is how Jesus calls us to love, to love one another as I have loved you. It says, Sir Alfred Tennyson says that it is better to have love and loss than to never have loved at all. Each of us in this room today have been created for community. And if you are a believer, you have been called to a type of community that loves one another as Christ has loved us. But the reality for each of us as we are walking out this dirt road of sanctification is that we oftentimes, and we always do, determine the level in which we want to love those that we call 
our fellow brothers and sisters. I always think of it like a pool where you have people on the surface just floating around with a margarita in, your, in their hand. You have people that are just wading in the shallow end, just kind of enjoying the pool and everything like that. And then you have people who are doing the hard work of treading in the deep end. On the surface level, you find people who stay in their corner, they never engage with anyone, and they just focus on making their life, their immediate family, the best it can possibly be, and just basically living, as, living out this life uh, as if there is no tomorrow until one day they get to go to heaven. And then the shallow end, you find a people who maybe are a little bit more committed. They find, you find a people who have that desire a little bit more to, to be outside of themselves. And so maybe they attend church regularly on Sundays and they build relationships that, that are centered around those classic lobby conversations like, wow, did you see the weather this Sunday? It's pretty crazy, huh? Or, wow, this thing happened to me. And it always ends in just a chuckle as you guys walk away from each other and don't talk again until Sunday morning. But then there are people who are in the deep end. And these people, you'll find that they're people that have made a decision to be vulnerable and to step out and commit to community and a type of community in such a way where they know and they are willing to love in such a way that their hearts would be wrung and twisted and in some cases broken. And as we talk about this idea of better together and we try to set up and provide and and cultivate and and tell you about all these spaces that we have within Hope Fellowship itself to give you community. And as we talk about this idea of better together, I don't think this morning that we need to talk about what community is. I think we have a general understanding of that. And I definitely don't think we need to talk about why community is important. Because if COVID lockdowns taught us anything besides how to bake sourdough bread, brew kombucha, or any other unspeakable substance that I won't talk about up on this stage... It's that community is vital. Community is essential. And that each of us in this room, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, have an ache deep in our soul for deep relationships that go beyond just a shared sports team or where you work or even just similar life circumstances. We all, it just depends on the number of people that we want those kinds of relationships with, we all are craving those kinds of relationships because we have been created in the image of a God who exists in perfect community. We are a people looking for deep relationships. And so what I want to talk about today as I get you for the next couple of minutes is I want to talk about how we can cultivate and keep the kind of community that Jesus is talking about in John 13, where we find this radical statement that becomes his most consistent command throughout the rest of the book of John as he says to the disciples, a new commandment I give to you, unlike any other one I've ever given you, I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is one of those classic, easy to say, hard to do commands that Jesus gives. And perhaps in my opinion, this is one of the most difficult things that Jesus ever commands and requires of us. And yet it's one that Jesus feels and shows is so important and integral to the functioning of the body and to the unity of the body and to the message of the gospel itself. This is a core aspect of it. So much so that he repeats that we are to love one another three times in just two verses. Or in 
John 15, two chapters later, speaking to the same disciples after telling them that they are to abide in the vine and that they are to abide in him and he will abide in them. He says that you are to love one another as I have loved you. Or in John 17, when he's interceding on our behalf to the Father and praying to God the Father for unity amongst all believers so that it could be a message to the world around them that this thing is actually real, he again prays that we would have love for one another as he has loved us. In three separate occasions, he is driving in this point that we are commanded, not optional, we are commanded to love one another as he has loved us. Why? It's because this is the key behind this question of how we are actually to cultivate and keep a type of community that is a city on a hill, that is shining for the world to see, that exudes and reflects the God that we say we follow and serve. So how, if if we're going to have this conversation of how do we cultivate and keep, then the first thing that we need to understand is how does Jesus love Maybe even make the picture broader. How does God, throughout the Bible, love the people that he calls his own and love the world that doesn't even call him his own? How does he love them? And what we find is two things that I want to talk about today first. And that is that he loves in a way that is unconditionally committed to humbly sacrificing himself. It is a love that is both unconditionally committed and humbly sacrificial. So a word on both of them. The first, throughout the Bible, we see that God chooses to love his people based on the commitments that he makes rather than his own current preferences. We see in this type of world the, the type of conditional love where I will love you so long as it is easy for me to love you or you are in proximity to me or, or that it benefits me in some way, shape, or form. But the moment that it stops, the moment that you can't give me something, the moment that we don't hold to the same ideologies or values, then I will end that love. This kind of conditional love is not the one that we see God exude in the Bible. In fact, what we see throughout Scripture is that God sets a precedent to love one another that is based simply on a vow to love. And oftentimes to ensure that each of us understand just how serious he is to love one another, he makes a covenant with the people. Covenant being an ancient contract between two people. Except the first time, or sorry, the first time that we see this type of covenant, this type of promise that is sealed in an actual contract, uh, it's a very prominent one that comes in Genesis 15, 6, when God chooses Abraham to be his people and actually makes a promise to Abraham that every single person that would come after Abraham in his line would be his own people. They would call God their God and they would be his people. But the fascinating thing about this covenant and the precedent that God sets, the example that God gives in the way in which he loves is that he doesn't make a traditional covenant that would have been normal for everyone between two separate entities and individuals. God actually makes the covenant with Abraham between God and God. God actually shows that he is making something that is unconditional. It is not contingent on whether or not Abraham is following him, whether or not those people are serving God endlessly, how well they do, how perfect they are. It is contingent simply on the character of God. 
These are the types of covenants that we find throughout Scripture, whether it's Noah and the rainbow when God promises that he's never going to do that again, the Abrahamic covenant that we see in Genesis 15, 6, the Mosaic covenant where God promises that he is going to lead the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And we see him uphold that promise time and time again. There are countless stories in Exodus where God says to Moses, I'm about to smite these people because they are driving me up a wall. And all Moses has to do is remind him of the promise that he has made, the covenant that he has made. And then we find this beautiful and amazing new covenant in the New Testament given to us by Jesus through the death and resurrection that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. They would have what was lost restored to them, which is a relationship with God. Through all of time, for all of time, God has always loved based on his commitments and not his current preferences. Hebrews 6, 17 through 18 summarizes this type of covenant and this type of love well, saying that because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged." He has done this so that we would be greatly encouraged, so that we would have the confidence to approach him, knowing that it's not contingent on what you've done or what's been done for you. It is simply contingent on God, and God has made a vow to love each of us. When we are in a relationship with someone who has this kind of unconditional commitment, when it's not conditioned on how we perform, what we can give, how good we are, or anything like that, it gives the necessary stability and confidence for that relationship to actually grow in healthy ways. In any relationship where it's contingent on something, that's usually not going to be a great relationship because there's going to be this pressure to perform. There's going to be an anxiety of, did I upset this person too much this time? But with God, he doesn't do that. He loves in such a way that we can have the supreme, utmost confidence that he is not going to leave or forsake us. Romans 8, 38 through 39, Paul speaks with this kind of confidence. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing is going to make him not love you. Period. Because he has made a commitment that is unconditional towards you. Peter experiences this kind of commitment in the John 13 passage that we read. Right after Jesus commands his disciples to love one another as he has loved them, we see Peter asking a question because earlier, a couple verses prior, Jesus told him that he was going away. And so Peter, with the one-track mind that he has, didn't hear anything about the command about loving one another. He just goes straight back to what Jesus said prior to this and says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus then answers him saying, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. 
Peter is a disciple that we see throughout the New Testament who ferociously and passionately loves and follows Jesus. He's the one whom the church is going to explode out of. We see him love Jesus so much that he's willing to go to war and start a war simply to protect Jesus from being taken. And yet, he is the same disciple that in all of those stories we see, he's the same disciple who abandons and denies Jesus. I think that Jesus knows this to some degree. I know he knows this. He tells Peter before it even happens what's going to happen. And I think that Jesus probably in his humanity is hurt by this kind of abandonment of a deep friend. Someone who he has gone through life with, suffered alongside of, done ministry with, and poured himself into and been poured into by Peter. And yet this person betrays him, abandons him. And in the midst of this hurt... The beauty of the commitment of Christ towards those that he loves is that even on the cross, as Jesus is dying and Peter is denying Jesus, Jesus is thinking of Peter. He's dying for Peter. The ones who pound the nails into his wrists and physically crucify him, Jesus is thinking of them on the cross. The ones who are mocking him and saying words that we cannot repeat in church towards Jesus while he's hanging there on a cross. Jesus is thinking of them, dying for them, all out of a great commitment to love them. What we see time and time again from scripture to scripture, we sang about it today, is that he is faithful to love those even when the ones that he loves are unfaithful to him. If God has made a commitment and he's binded it with a covenant, he is not going to abandon those who he has made it with even if they all abandon him on the cross. And it brings us to the second aspect of Jesus' love. Not only is it one that is unconditionally committed to us, but it is also one that is humbly sacrificial. Philippians 2 presents this picture perfectly, describing the sacrifice that Jesus made, not just on one instance in the cross, on the cross, but also throughout his life. Uh, Paul first says a similar thing that Jesus says in John 13, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Love like Jesus, have the same mind as Jesus, who, talking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's life, the entirety of his life, is marked by sacrifice, starting first when he enters into this world, not as a conquering king, but as a baby boy. Someone who is completely dependent on someone else to provide for them and sustain them and give life to them. He gives up equality with God. He doesn't give up his godness. We know that Jesus is truly God and truly man. We hold fast to that in our faith. But what we do see is that he gives up and he does not count himself, sorry, he does not count himself equal to the Father. He submits himself to the will of the Father so that whatever the Father would say to do, he does. He not only does that, but he sacrifices his kingship by becoming a servant. Matthew 20, verse 28, he says, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but, or to, to be served, but to serve. 
the reality that we see that a lot of Jewish people expected of the Messiah was that he would come as this conquering king who would destroy all of God's enemies and then everyone would bow to him and bestow on him all the riches of the world and all of these things. And Jesus has every single right. The God of the universe has every single right to come in that way, to come to be served, and yet he chooses to come as a servant treating nothing as his own, not even his life or his time. My favorite example of the humility that Jesus has, while it's never explicitly stated in these instances, you can see his humility in moments like these. If you look throughout stories of Jesus healing people in scripture and a miracle being done, most of those stories in our eyes is an interruption. The paralyzed man being lowered through the roof is an interruption of Jesus preaching. The woman touching his cloak is an interruption as he is walking somewhere else. When he heals the blind man because the blind man comes to him and asks him to do so, it's an interruption on the way to him raising or healing a little girl from being sick. Time and time again, we see these stories that to us, they look like little interruptions to what Jesus is actually trying to do, but Jesus never views them as interruptions because he doesn't hold his own time, his life, his ministry, his calling as his own, but the Father's. And so he is willing to drop anything and everything. He's willing to to help someone else on the way to help someone else simply because his time is not his own. His life is not his own. And as if the creator of the universe stepping in as flesh to this world is not enough of a picture of the humble sacrifice that he gives to us, he shows just how far he's willing to take this unconditional commitment to us By dying on a cross. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 says that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. There are not as many humiliating, agonizing, and brutal ways to die than that of the crucifixion. It's why the Roman people invented it. They wanted to break the people that they were crucifying, not just physically, but they wanted to break their spirit. They wanted to break their their emotional capacity, their mental fortitude. They wanted to break every single aspect of them. Whether it was what they did at the beginning when they stripped the person down completely naked and they beat him so there's blood pouring off of his body. Then they take him through a crowd where they get to yell at him and talk to him. They humiliate him as he is just naked walking through the crowd. Or they put him down on the cross and they tie straps around his arms and his ankles so that he doesn't writhe when these stakes, not cute little nails, but stakes are driven through joints and ligaments so that when he gets put up on that cross, and when anyone would get put up on that cross, their bones, their ligaments, their muscles are slowly stretching until eventually they break or the person dies. And then once they're up there on that cross, completely naked for everyone to see every single aspect of them, their emotional tears, their physical body, the way that they handle pain, the way that they handle brokenness and betrayal. Everything is up there for grabs and they keep you alive just enough so that you can suffer for as long as humanly possible until eventually your lungs fill up with blood and you choke to death. This is the crucifixion. We asked our college students in a group last week, who would you be willing to die for like this? And everyone had said initially like 10 people. And then once we brought the crucifixion into play, it was like, okay, well, maybe not 10 people, maybe one. 
And yet Christ loves us in these kinds of sacrificial, unconditional ways that show how much he loves us. Robert E. Coleman says that, the love, that love is always giving itself away. If love is self-contained, it is not love. This is the kind of love that Jesus is not just calling us into, but commanding us to have this morning. Not just for the immediate family, but that Greek word one another actually means the people that you are doing life with, that you are worshiping in the temple together with, which we don't have a temple, we have this church, Hope Fellowship. That we're to love one another in these kinds of ways as Christ loved us. So what's keeping us from having these kinds of relationships? Well, I think we could talk about a lot, and while we could talk about systems and structures and leadership and all these different things, what you see throughout Scripture as New Testament writers write to church after church, whether Corin or Ephesus or the region of Galatia, what we see when churches, when Christians are not flourishing in ways because they're not loving one another as Christ loved one another, it is simply because it contains a people who are unwilling to put in the work necessary to cultivating this kind of community. The core problem of all these things is it contains a people who either don't have a desire or they just don't want to or they just aren't willing to put in the strenuous labor, toiling, and effort that it takes to cultivate a community that loves one another as Christ loves one another. This is the problem we face. Americans are a very mobile people. We move to a new home once every four years. If you're me, you move every one and a half years, just half a mile farther away. We change jobs at least seven times in our life. For Christians specifically, a Barna study showed that 30% of Christians, roughly 30% of Christians in the United States, church hop and church shop every four to five years. And in 2013, the Time Magazine put out this article that called the culture that we are living in a me, me, me culture. A culture that's centered around preferences and contingencies and not commitments and unconditional natures. A culture that is more selfish than it is sacrificial. In the same Barna study, it actually pulled a large number of believers asking, why do you go to the churches that you go to? And 70% of those Christians said that the main reason that they attended the church they attend was for the teaching and for the worship, for things in which they can consume. Are these important? Absolutely. You should go to a church where the teaching is biblical and sound and where the worship doesn't sound like dying cows or cats scraping their nails on something. I am all for that. We should have preferences. It's not bad to have preferences or try out churches where you can try to see, do I fit into this type of structure? Is this, are there opportunities for me to get into community or does it seem like everything is closed off? We should care about the kind of teaching. We should hold teachers accountable. We should care about the kind of worship and make sure that we're singing great theology and we're praying twice, as one theologian once put it, when we're singing. And yet none of these should be, as we see in Scripture, the deciding factors for the communities that we choose to go to. All these things are important, but that's not what the study was looking at. What the study actually implies and shows is that people simply leave a church because in some way it's imperfect. But is the solution 
to the genuine imperfections of the church, the leaders in it, the systems that it has, the people who are in it, simply to leave and go looking for a better and easier option. If we were to go to the Bible and you would look for a definition of community, the fascinating thing is that you do not find an explicit definition for what church, what this community of believers is. Instead, you find over 100 metaphors building out this picture of what the body of Christ, what the church of Christ, what the community of believers should look like, and none is more frequent and prevalent than that of comparing it to a body, that we are called a body of believers, a body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives this metaphor to the church of Corinth, describing the church, saying, there is one body, but it has many parts, but all its many parts make up one body. It is the same with Christ. We were all baptized by one Holy Spirit, and so we are formed into one body. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that it takes a tribe of people, a community of people, to build what Christ prayed for in John 17. That the community that each of us long for, the types of relationships that our souls long for and ache for, cannot be sustained or succeeded and does not rise and fall on just a few individuals. Four pastors cannot love a community of 800 people well. For pastors can't disciple an entire church community. Pastor Matthew can't raise every single one of our kids in hope youth. Churches cannot be dependent, the people that attend them cannot be dependent on a few people fighting for unity, cultivating the type of love because it is something that each of us are called to and gifted for. If I can be honest, which is dangerous to do in a conversation like this, but if I can be honest for the sake of the longevity of my own ministry, the health of my family, and just my own personal transformative journey that Jesus has me on, I am one very imperfect person. If you want to know how imperfect you are, get married or have a kid. And if you really want to know, do both. And you will see clearly how prideful, how selfish, and how sinful you really are. I know that I am extremely imperfect. Mark knows that he is one person and is imperfect. Matthew is one person and is imperfect. Jordan, who's in the room today, let's go, is imperfect and is one person. Susan, well, we got all of us except for Mark in the room today. Look at us. Susan is one person and imperfect. None of us are filled with more of the Spirit. None of us are more called to this role of building up the body. None of us are more special than any of you, maybe Jordan, if you watch his videos. And yet each of us know the integral roles that we play within the body of Christ. We're not going to deny that we have important roles. Stan Tussman, my dear friend, reminds me daily almost, it feels like, that I'm going to be judged higher than he is going to be judged, as Scripture says. So I thank him for reminding me of that day in and day out in the only way that Stan can. We know that we're called to shepherd and to guide, to lead by example, to speak Speak truth constantly and consistently to set the example for the way in which we love, to cultivate and to equip other people to do the same thing that we are doing, and most importantly, to provide spaces for community to be cultivated. We're aware of all of that. If you, but if you want a church and you want to be a part of a church where the community is thriving and people are doing life together and transformation is taking place within the four walls, but you don't find your place in the body of Christ, to work and to put in the work necessary to building it up, then you will never find what you are looking for. Plenty of churches, 
play to this consumeristic model where they don't provide spaces for us to actually cultivate the body of Christ, but we don't want to be like that. There are plenty of churches that also don't want to be like that. We want to be a place where we are cultivating a space, or sorry, we are creating a space for each of us in the room to cultivate the kind of love that Jesus calls us to have. But if we only ever stay on the surface of the pool, floating around, enjoying our drinks and the weather and just stuff like that, or just really even stay in the shallow end, and we never take that risk of moving into the deep end, then what we risk is never experiencing the joy, the real, tangible, spirit-filled joy of lifelong intimacy with people that are not required to be intimate on a friendship kind of way with us. And it also, we run the risk of never experiencing the trust and stability that comes from mutually, unconditionally committed relationships centered around and driven by, enabled and empowered by Jesus. And I don't want to pretend like I am great at this or that it's even easy. When I first came here as a freshman in college, I sat um, right side, right where I don't, I don't know if I know of anyone over there, but I sat right around there for two years. I came in with two of my friends. We'd get our donuts. We'd sit down. We would get our coffee. We would sit there, listen to a message, sing, and we would walk out as, about as fast as we possibly could. For two years, I pretty much stayed on the surface until I started to do the hard work of actually building and cultivating relationships with people in this church that I did not have to, but that I was called to. And I just want to say that those two years, though, were formative for me. I was so new to the faith. I think if I would have jumped into the deep end in that moment, I most likely would have drowned. And so I'm thankful that I just stayed in the pew for two years and I just listened and I grew and all those things. And I never want to this to become this type of pressure thing where you have to join a group or you have to do a, a bigger thing. But I also don't want to create so much gray space and nuances that then you can just make an excuse not to love as Christ has commanded to love. It's a balance. I don't want to say that we're not aware of that. We're aware of the tension and the balance of this. And yet he calls us, he commands us to love one another as he has loved us. It's not only uh, it doesn't just take work, or sorry, it's, it's not that I'm just great at this, but it's also hard work. You can see throughout the New Testament, all of these writers writing to their churches, telling them what it takes in order to build this type of body up. And the hard part is it's not, an emo- it's not a physical work, but it's an emotional and a spiritual type of work that can only be done if you are well aware of God's love for you, if you are being enabled by the Spirit, And also, if you are in close proximity with someone. Just look at this list for one another. I think it's going to be on the screen. It should be. It might be. It is. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Wait for one another. Have the same care for one another. Be servants of one another. Bear one another's burdens. Comfort one another. Build one another up. Be at peace with one another. Put up with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Submit to one another. Forgive one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Love one another from the heart. Be hospitable to one another. Meet one another with humility. And that's not even all of them. But I'm going to stop there because we'd be here for another 30 minutes. 
These are all things that each of us are exhorted to do with one another. That Greek word meaning in community with other believers outside of your immediate context. And the stark reality that we have to come to terms with this morning is that wherever you are in your journey of becoming and in your journey for community, this is not an optional aspect of the kingdom of God and those who are in it. This is his command. He says he has two greatest commands. When someone asks him, Jesus, what, what are the two greatest commands? He says to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, and spirit. And the second is like this, to love others as you love yourself, as I have loved you. This is what is required of those who follow him that Paul will say in Philippians that we can do all things. We can do these things through him who strengthens us. It's a spirit-enabled kind of love out of a deep knowing of the love that Jesus has for you. And what this means is that there's no great book that you can read that forms community quick. There's not a pill you can take like the matrix. It's not about the right mix of people or a specific kind of pastor. A community works and flourishes not when the preaching is great or when the worship is worshipful or if there's tons of people coming out. None of that is what makes a community work or flourish or love one another. The only way community works as God has called, commanded, and intended for it to work is if it contains a people unconditionally committed to humbly sacrificing their life for the kingdom of God and the people of God. So how can we do this? As the church, how can we provide? These are a little bit different Sundays than we do on on any other given Sunday because we don't want just to leave with something that you can go out and practice, but we want to give you tangible next steps to how you can do and carry out this practice of love. Community is, in every essence, a practice of love. And we as a church try to provide as many opportunities. But if you are sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm just on the surface or I am still in the shallow and you want to start moving your way into the deep end of building out deep relationships with people that build up the kingdom of God and the people of God, then there's tons of ways to do that. You can serve on a team. Serving is an incredible way to suffer alongside of one another as you change poopy diapers. It's a great way to build camaraderie or to sing with one another uh, on stage and to come on Thursday rehearsal nights or to be a college leader or to work and hope you or to be in production or to greet or to do any of these things are ways in which you can start to move into the deep end. Or we have incredible community groups. These are groups that you can join at any point. We have an incredible Women's Tuesday morning group at 9 a.m. that if you're a woman, you need to go to if you can. We have a great men's breakfast at 6.30 a.m. We're really testing how much do you want it at Chick-fil-A. There's a great relationship group on Wednesday nights led by Michelle and Kenny. All of these things are things that we want to try to provide as many spaces as possible for you to cultivate the community that you've been called to cultivate. And tonight, we have a very specific kind of opportunity, a specific next step for anyone who wants to get plugged into a home group. These are intentional groups made up of 8 to 16 individuals who make a commitment to going through life together for at least one year. And three years ago, when we kind of set the vision for this, we wanted them to become kind of like a a tribe, one where they bear one another's burdens, they mourn with each other, they celebrate each other, they help each other get through life, they go on double dates, they help disciple each other's kids, they are completely invested and integrated into one another's life. And the potential for any of these communities, whether you're serving, whether you're in the community groups, or whether you come out to Connect Night and you get plugged into a home group tonight, the potential is infinite if they are filled 
with the people who are unconditionally committed to sacrificing their life for the sake of those in it. I've been the Connections pastor for the last three years. We've had 30 home groups form, and we've had 16 home groups fail or no longer meet anymore. And so what I want to just set the precedent for in any of these things is there is no promise that if you get into it, it is going to be amazing and you're just going to have a Joey and, and Chandler type of relationship where you're just talking to one another all the time and it's going to be an open door policy. I can't even promise that you're initially going to like the people that are in these things, that you're going to have anything in common, that it's going to be a natural and normal conversation. I can't practice, promise any of that simply because those things can't be forced or manipulated. They have to be cultivated. It takes work. Part of my form of measurement, it takes a butt ton of work. And so we never want to just talk about things like these, but we want to give you practical pictures, especially on Sundays like these where we spend two weeks talking about our vision as the church and how we can better become who God has created us to be by belonging to the community that he's created us for. So we want to show you a testimony video of a couple here in our church who we love dearly, who are currently in a group working and striving to make this type of love and to try to cultivate this kind of love between the people who are in it. And so for a moment, if you would, turn your attention to the screen for the Holloman's story video. So we joined Hope about a year and a half ago, and then two weeks um, after we started coming, um, they were doing a connect night, and we um, knew that um, finding community um, in our home church was something that was very important to the both of us, and so um, we signed up for the Connect Night, and we showed up that night not really knowing what to expect, um, but um, really got to know some people at the table that we were sitting with. Um, come to find out, they became part of our home group, and uh, it has just been a really great time for us to connect to people in the same stage of life. Connecting right off the bat uh, was something that was really important for us because in our previous church, we didn't have uh, a community that was similar to our um, age or our uh, stage of life. And so that was something that uh, was a really big part of what we were looking for. And so Hope was able to accommodate that right uh, from the beginning. We wanted to dive deeper um, in getting to know people more intentionally. Um, and so home group was a way to do that and to get um, really plugged in um, and feel like we weren't just keeping things surface level um, with our, with our um, church that we wanted to attend on a weekly basis. It was something we prayed for for a long time. Of, um, we knew we needed people that uh, could be there for us in uh, times of need, but also uh, just people that we could just do everyday life with, uh, people that were in our same stage of life. For us, I, I remember um, when... Um, Britt went into uh, labor seven weeks early um, and and knowing that we were able to rely on the four other couples who were in that group of uh, them bringing over meals and them literally uh, packing up our house when we were moving in that same week of uh, packing up our old house and moving us into our, our new house and that was just because we were able to rely on those four other couples who were in our group and that's just what home group means to us of being able to, um, to grow um, in relationships with them, but also um, to do everyday life with them um, and to, to grow one another for that. So 
the first year we met um, every other week um, on Tuesday nights at somebody's house. Um, and it really honestly just got to be too much um, where we had uh, kids uh, just going crazy for an hour and a half and then we had to go home and do bedtimes and all of our kids range from three months old now to uh, five years old and trying to do all that we really just knew it was just utter chaos and so we decided after much prayer and thought and really just talking it out hashing it out as a group uh, we decided to meet uh, weekly um, here at the church. I think we knew that doing a weeknight um, and then every other week it was hard to plan for and just added more stress to a, whoever was hosting um, and of course each group looks a little different so um, we're not saying like our group has it figured out by any means um, and we also know that it um, has changed and will continue to change there's always the ebb and flow um, because we're all people who have individual lives so I would encourage you to um, if you aren't yet involved in a home group um, that there are home groups that you can join um, or that will be created um, here soon and um, or if you're in one and you're just not quite sure that it's where it needs to be or where you want it to be um, then I would encourage you you know to talk to your leader to talk to your group. The commitment level is high but it's something that we prioritize and it's something that we want to uh, do to keep um, diving deeper with these couples um, and diving uh, deeper in our faith um, with them. Um, so those are the two words that really keep coming to mind and something that we've been praying over is um, just the sacrifice that it keeps um, taking to dive deeper in our faith and dive deeper with them, um, but also the, just the commitment level that it, it takes to um, really um, just to get to know them and uh, really keep the, the friendship from just staying surface level. One of my favorite passages of scripture uh, comes from uh, Mark chapter 2 um, with the paralyzed man. And I think about how the paralyzed man uh, got to Jesus. And it's because of his uh, four friends. And he got to uh, Jesus because the four friends um, brought him directly to Jesus. Um, and he wouldn't have got there unless he had friends who uh, had the heart uh, to take him there. Um, and I think that um, all of us are paralyzed unless we have people around us that are doing life with us. Coming in with realistic expectations too is something that will benefit you um, with what you're looking for in a home group. Um, that it's not always going to be pretty um, if you are being like transparent and vulnerable um, in your group. It's the good, bad, and the ugly. Um, and that's okay. Uh, if you're on the fence of uh, joining a home group, um, or maybe you're in a failed home group, I would encourage you um, to not do life alone, um, to jump back in, um, to, um, to really go back in and go for it. Um, because one of the best things we've done, literally um, in our first two weeks of coming to Hope, we joined a home group, and it's been the best thing that we've done. Um, because we're able to do uh, life with people. Um, if you are looking for a home group, um, not quite sure where to start, um, then maybe today's that day. Um, if you, um, you know, are coming from another church where um, you're coming feeling just burdened and um, heavy-hearted and um, maybe even a little heartbroken, um, today's a new day. Um, and if you 
are coming even to hope and your home group may not have worked out in the way that you had hoped it would, um, there are still others and um, it's filled with people um, with different interests and um, different life stages and um, just because one didn't work doesn't mean that another one won't and so I think um, it's important to just fight for it anyway. Um, you may not think that people want to be a part of your life, um, but people want to, um, and they want to join you um, in at your lowest points, and uh, they want to know um, your, your points of joy. They want to know your highest points. They want to celebrate with you as well. So um, I would encourage you to, to let people in. This is really what community is. It is a practice of love as you sacrifice your time, bedtime routines at times, and anything else in life simply because you are committed to loving a people closer to Christ, to walking alongside of people as they go to Christ. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this they will know, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer is famously quoted for saying, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether or not our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. In a world where it's seemingly hard to lay down your life, whether, and a lot of people aren't willing to do that anymore. In a, in a world where love is becoming more and more conditional, the way in which we love one another is like Christ is the clear, objective, solid evidence that what we claim to believe, that each of us are now members of the kingdom of God and each of us are now families in the family of God and each of us are walking and pursuing the same thing, which is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind in Christ Jesus, it puts the rubber to the road and says, this is actually what we believe because we're living it out, not just talking about it. And so today... I realize that there are people in different spots with different experiences. If you're unwilling, if you're somewhere in the room today and you're unwilling or you have no desire to build these kinds of relationships, I would simply encourage you to ask yourself, who have I been following? What am I a disciple of? Am I a disciple, am I a disciple of the love of Christ or of the love of the world? If you find yourself hurting from failed communities who hurt you or who let you down, Ask, have I experienced the love of Christ in such a way that enables me to love even when I am not loved by those around me? And if you find yourself complaining for a community not being what you wanted, friendships not being what you expected or what you prefer, ask yourself, is my ingratitude hindering me from helping to cultivate a type of community that I want that is life-giving? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this pretty simply that I want to end on today. He says, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty. If on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Christ Jesus. This is not in reference to, and this whole message is not in reference to just groups here at Hope or serving. This is in reference to the relationships that you have and build and cultivate in your daily walk. So I want to do something awkward to end today. I'm going to have you guys actually do something awkward. 
I want you guys to take a look around the room and make awkward eye contact with a couple of strangers. I mean like deep eye contact. Look into their eyes for a second. Someone that you don't know. Find someone and look at them. Come on. I see some of you just saying, no, I'm not doing it. Come on. I haven't asked you to do anything else or talk to anyone today. This is all I'm asking you. Find someone you don't know. It's going to be awkward if they know you and you don't know them. Has everyone done this? You promise? This is the house of God. No lying. This is what I want us to see because oftentimes we can become so focused on facing forward when we come to church that we forget that these people around you that call Hope their home church, that are investing in this church, that are here for the worship and the teaching, whatever reason the people are here today, whether it's your first time or your 10,000th time, which I don't think is possible, but if it is, these are the people in your community that Christ is calling you to love like he loves himself or like he loves us. These are the people in our community. They are going to disappoint you if you get in close proximity with them. They are going to let you down. You might not even know their name, but you might in the future, hopefully you do. But here's the beauty. They are destined for glory. And we have the privilege to help them get there. Let's pray. God, work in our hearts in such a way. Let us experience your love in such a way. Let us dwell and abide deeply in your presence in such a way. May we remind ourselves frequently of the way in which you love us and the way in which you showed how much you loved us when we were undeserving, ugly in our sin and unwilling to come to you and bow down. You still loved us. Would you reveal yourself to us in such a way? Would you break down the barriers of people's hearts in such a way where they don't just attend the church for the worship or the teaching? Would you break down the barriers of people's hearts who have been hurt by people in the past? In the name of Jesus, would you break down the barriers that people have up right now simply because they don't want to risk being wrung or possibly broken? And would you would you fill us in such a way? Would you... Reveal yourself to such us to, in such a way right now, right here, that we would be overwhelmed by your love, that it transforms us, that moves us into the deep end, that we unconditionally commit ourselves to humbly sacrificing our life for your kingdom, for your glory, for your good, and for the good of those who call you Abba, Father. Would we be a family? As dysfunctional as a family we are going to be if we are cultivating this, would we be a family that forgives one another, submits to one another, outdoes, outdoes one another in showing honor, bears one another's burdens, mourns with each other, celebrates with each other? Would we be a people that take our conversations beyond just the lobby talk? We'd be a people that aren't just relying and focused on the pastors doing all of the work, but that we would be a people who are committed to building up the body, flexing the muscles that God has given each of us uniquely and wonderfully so that we can carry out the work that he has called all of us to. So Holy Spirit, have mercy on us. 
have mercy on each of us today. And would you come quickly? God, we love you and we thank you.